Hello, I'm Tony Cantwell, and welcome to the CMG Business Podcast. Each episode, we talk to interesting people to help us better understand and manage the challenges of business and hopefully learn from their experiences. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Louis Gunnigan. Louis is Program Leader for Campus Development at Technological University Dublin, Grange Gorman. Louis has over 30 years' experience in the construction education sector and has been Team Leader for Engineering and Built Environment, DIT, Head of School of Construction in DIT, and his knowledge and experience of the construction sector is vast, and he's written over 50 major papers, both nationally and internationally, on construction subjects, ranging from future trends in construction, barriers to innovation, and tendering procedures in PPPs, and an awful lot more besides. I've known and worked with Louis a long time, and I'm always interested to get his take on what's happening in the sector. Louis, you're very welcome to the podcast. How are you? Fine. Really good today. I have to say, for people listening, I've worked on and off with Louis on several media and industry projects over the last 10 to 12 years. He's chaired a huge amount of our construction business and technical conferences. Um, and because of his experience, he was our first go-to judge for the Building and Design Awards. And if I'm correct, are you chairing the... the are you on the judge? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm still there, still chairing it. Chairing yeah. for the yeah. 2019 yes. Irish Building and Design Awards. Um, before we get too far into other stuff, um, congratulations on Grange Gorman. Um, and your role in helping to get it where it is and where it's going. Um, where are we at now on Grange Gorman? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the congratulations is for everybody who's out there. The role I have on Absolutely. it is, is, is just, uh, it, it's one about, of uh, trying to get TU Dublin's needs put forward within the, the whole process. Yeah. The uh, delivery of the project is on the Grange Gorman Development Agency. Yeah. And the work they do is, it's absolutely second to none when you consider that uh, we have four live projects uh, there at the moment. We have, in, sorry, four projects in construction. We have 16 live projects. Yes. Um, we are all the time on budget. We are all the time within time, which is something you can't always say for public no, projects. No, that's an achievement in its own And uh, we will have 10,000 students there next September. And wow. the effort of all of the team in doing that has been astonishing. Just to give you an idea of the scale of the project, it's, uh, it's 73 acres. It has 30 building plots, each one of them which will have probably three building contracts. But all of the infrastructure was put in to service those 30 building plots. Yeah. So all of the manholes, all of the cables, or not cables, all of the ductwork, everything is there. So when you go to build something, all of the services are literally beside you. You never have to dig up for them again. 73 acres in the middle of a capital city like that. Was that, was, I don't know the background then, to, to the land ownership, was that? The, the site has been in use for, uh, for government use for a long time as a, a health facility, uh, a mental health facility, but also parts of it as a, a, a prison. There are people who are actually executed at the back of the clock tower in Grange Gorman. Wow. There is a story of numerous people being rounded up and being... Uh, brought to sent to Tasmania, particularly women that were were rounded up and sent out to Tasmania. Um, there's a lot of really uh, sad and difficult stories, historical ab- stories about Grange Gorman. But um, there is a long, long history of government ownership of that. 
of the, of the site. Now Is there a large part of it derelict and just... Uh, quite a bit of it. Uh, there would have been, I think, about 3,000 people on it at, uh, at its height. Right. And uh, the problem with mental health in the past is that it was something that was pushed into a place where people didn't want to see. So there were big walls built around mental hospitals. Yeah. And uh, that wall was still there when we arrived. And the wall was there both to keep people out and keep people in. But mental health had changed radically in the last, say, 20, 30 years, where the population of the site had diminished. And it wasn't necessary to have a site of that size for mental health. But there was a need for new mental health facilities. So there was a need for a new hospital. But at the same time, there was also a need for a new home for what was the Dublin Institute of Technology at the time. And so where was the germ of the start on that? Where was... that it triggered and this is our site or this is where we want to go well or. that goes back that proceeds when when I was in in DIT yeah uh, it goes back into the early 90s and what was happening is everybody was looking at um, DIT as an organisation and it was scattered all over the city yeah now when I moved to the project in uh, 2011 there were I think it was 39 different locations in Dublin that had DIT over the door. Right. So you can imagine with uh, something like that, the uh, costs involved in security, in electricity, in telecoms. Every time you went to go into a building, you had a new bill. There yeah. wasn't one bill for everything. It was everything. all terribly fragmented. It was desperately fragmented. And the other thing is that it was divided into six colleges all the way across Dublin, or six faculties as it was at the time and each one of those had their own exams office their own accounts office they almost ran like independent republics because they had uh, developed as independent colleges and under DIT they were to become one and a lot of amalgamation was done but there was a realisation that it was never going to be complete until they were all in one place yeah so there was this move of let's let's bring them all together and let's solve those problems the other thing that there was is that there were really good things happening in various different parts of the organisation, but they couldn't share these things. Yes. So, for example, you have architects in uh, Bolton Street. You had musicians in Rathmines. But if you put architects and musicians together, you get the design of the most magnificent concert halls. But True. they were on the wrong side of the city. Yeah. Uh, and there were several other examples such as that. When we bring them all together, we will have all of these students interacting with each other. Yeah. And it will create a synergy which simply didn't exist before. Do you find even now that there's a new energy? There's a there's such a, a different approach to the whole thing of DIT formally and now. Well, with the move to uh, to becoming a, a technological university, there has been a sea change because what we're now looking at is the the technological university model that there is in Europe is uh, it's a very strong model in that it. It homes in on what is needed by society and it delivers into society, whereas the, the old regional tech model and the IT model developed out of the VECs. Yes. So a lot of it developed out of uh, what, were the, what was the technical education that was required in a place at the time, and we build courses up from there. The technological university starts from the other end. It starts with what's the needs of society and work down from there. Yeah. Now, we obviously have a lot of stuff, so we are not starting from, from base. No. But it does open up whole new uh, areas for us to get involved in. But in relation to the excitement around the, the campus, I had 60 people in around the East Quad last, uh, last Friday. And uh, some of them were like, they were like children on Christmas morning. 
looking at the new facilities wow. after years and years of working in old buildings yes. that had been refitted to try to make do with what they wanted mm. and here they were going to have brand new facilities designed for them and in a lot of cases by them through their interaction with the design teams because you fall into a situation where sometimes it just particularly in modern times some buildings are just not fit for purpose the older buildings the the, the previous so obviously you're everything that's going now is state-of-the-art in Grange Gorman yes there are two thing, two sides to that there's one where you had a building that was built for you 30 years ago yes or 50 years ago and education has moved on yes and then there are the other ones that were never built for you that you got them historically and you try to make the best you try to make you try to make do we leased buildings from the private sector and we tried to turn them into third level education buildings and we did quite successfully and there are some people that you know when they look at the buildings they're moving out of they feel quite an affinity to them but when they see where they're moving to uh, their minds are changing yeah they get excited Um, looking just in terms of um, as we kind of move on to a lot of topics as I said to you earlier on your range is so broad it's actually very difficult to narrow down Louis Gunnigan to a particular sector I'm going to try and keep it obviously with the education and the construction sector before we get into those what's your view on the whole Brexit issue and the construction sector in Ireland now. Is there a big impact? Is there a small impact? Will there be any impact? I think if, if anybody is, is listening to this who works along with me, they'll start laughing as soon as they hear that before I even really? answer the question. Uh, it's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Yes. I, think it's, I think it's a terrible mistake. Yes. Uh, and I think the, uh, the dangers of a no-deal Brexit uh, are huge for Ireland. Uh, I hope sanity prevails though I don't see any great signs of sanity. Not at the moment. Uh, not, not at the moment. But the other thing that it, it's going to cause a problem for us in that a lot of what we put into our buildings in relation to the services uh, come across Britain yes. or from Britain. A lot of it comes from Germany, but it uses Britain as a land bridge, or it comes from Britain. We hire a lot of uh, specialists who are actually based in London and based in Manchester and based in various other different places around, around Britain, and they're brilliant people. And we're hoping that we'll still have access to them, though under the services directive, uh, it may be. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. And yes. I'm not an expert in that, so I don't know. Yeah. But um, we look at our project and we put that very much up on the risk register to see, you know, Brexit is an issue. But trying to find out how it's an issue and where it's an issue. It's very difficult is to quite navigate. Difficult. It's yes. very difficult to navigate. Yes. What about contracts? Because I know from... The, the industry going back we were looking at the various UK contracts and integrating maybe some of their concepts or embracing their, their style of contracts and so forth has that changed or well we have a quite a rigid uh, form of contract when I say a form of contract yeah. it's numerous different versions of the same of form the same, of contract yes. depending on whether it's design and build or civils or, or whatever um, but what has happened in the last number of months is that a review of the government contracts has been ordered by the Minister for Finance and they are now looking at the contracts in relation to uh, how they're working and why some of them are not working the way they should. And we've had some spectacular examples of mm. how contracts can uh, can go in a funny way. Yes. But we've also had an awful lot of contracts that went really, really well. You know, so um, taking... Uh, throwing away what we have is not an option either no but then there are new developments as well in the industry such as the collaboration that's required through building information modeling 
and there's a lot of scepticism with the the BIM people as to whether or not the contracts are flexible enough to deal with that level of cooperation. Right. Now, in the UK, um, there is the partnership type contracts, which was developed by Professor David Mosey from King's College. Yes, you worked and closely with him. I, I did, yeah. yes. And he has now developed with a group with which I was involved uh, a contract called the FAC1 contract. Yes. And what this does is it sits on top of the of any contract. Any is place in the, the world. alliance contract? Yes. yes. It sits on top of this. And um, it, it brings people into an environment where they can collaborate and there are rules made out for this and procedures made out for how it works. And if it fails, then you just fall back to the underlying contract, which is yeah. the one which takes precedence anyway. So you don't actually lose anything by doing this, but you potentially gain from it. Now, in the UK, this has been tried out and every single place it has been tried out, it has saved money. Right. Every single place it has come in and it has come in under time. It's also now been tried in Italy. It works there. In Romania, Bulgaria, Germany. They're looking at it in Brazil. They're looking at it in Spain. And I'm desperately trying to get them to look at it in Range Gorman. Really? <laughs> yes, because I think uh, I, I think there is an opportunity. We have, as uh, as I was saying earlier, we, we have all of these building contracts, which will probably run for another 10 years. Mm. You know, we should be doing new things there. Contracts are really all about the relationships that people have when they work with each other. And yeah. if they rub themselves up the, each other up the wrong way, then the contract comes into play. But if you actually take a view which is much more collaborative, yeah. you take the sting out of that. And I have seen that in, in a couple of places in, in Grange Gorman where uh, people were brought together and they said, look, we have a certain amount of money. We have a limited amount of time. But we will do everything we can to ensure that you do this contract and you actually make the profit that you have declared you want to make. And that actually worked in one particular uh, contract that we had, so much so that they won an award for Alliance Contracting. But that was using one of the most restrictive forms of contract that exists in the world, which is ours. But is there, is there an idealism between the contract and the practicalities of it? Is, you know, are they two different worlds? Because generally speaking, things change in the building process. Um, maybe uh, requirements or specs change or something goes up or down or costs vary and so forth. It tends to trigger a sequence, does it? It, it does. And what sometimes happens there is that a contractor realising that in order to get this job they have to, t to price it really, really tightly, yeah. then find that the client wants something else and now they're saying, hold on a second, I'm not going to make... Uh, anything like what I thought I was going to make out of this and I'm going to have to try and push back on this. It seems to me we're living in a very um, legalistic type of environment and um, everybody is kind of, there's a certain amount of ass covering that goes yes. on and protecting whatever margins are in there and I think you made a comment earlier in terms of um, the client may well want one thing and contractor maybe looks at something a little different or whatever but or maybe the, the same profits may not be available but you did a paper recently on what the client really wants yes yeah what does the client really want you? okay that, that's it that was an interesting uh, idea that uh, I was trying to get somebody involved to do a, a PhD in it yeah and we were looking at a concept called functionality risk because when you, when you do a risk register for a project, you get financial risk and contractual risk and various other things. But rarely does anybody say, well, what is the function that's required of this here? And who carries the risk of it? And how can we make sure that the, that risk is minimized? 
Now the function is always carried. The functionality risk is always carried by the users. Right. Does the building or does the space perform in order to deliver the outcome that required? That's that's required. So if you say, for example, you want to design a lecture theatre, you know most people will imagine immediately rows and rows of seats. Somebody down the front with uh, overhead projector or uh, AV system yeah. which will deliver uh, a lecture, and that's it. Now, if you then go back to the person who's delivering the lectures there, they might say, but I want my students to work together or I want my students to do something in a particular way. So it's not fulfilling the function that you want. Mm. And what often happens is that designers, because they are also working on a very tight budget, will rush to the norm of what is required and they won't spend the time trying to find out what is the function that's required by the client. Now, the way to design a learning space is to find out what should the students be able to do when they've finished in the lecturing space or in the in that teaching space and then design around that. Right. So what you're trying to do there is to get at what does the client really want rather than what you think the client really wants. But the client would sign off on the design. Yes. And say, so is that where things start to happen where maybe the vision may not have been I, I thought I wanted that, and now that I see it, I don't. Is, it, are we, yeah. is that too simplistic? I, I, I'm going to go off on a bit of a tangent nope, here, so far stop, away. stop me if you wish. <laughs> um, there was some um, research done in the US uh, back in the 1990s mm. when they started looking at how people described somebody who potentially cre- um, committed a crime for a photofit picture or the creation of a photofit picture. And they discovered that the more they spoke to people, and the more they asked them to describe something, the less sure they were about what they wanted. Right. And it was, um, it was developed into a field called verbal overshadowing. And what they found out is that the more people write things down, the less they're sure about them, not right. the other way around. So if you think about it, somebody who's not an expert in construction and not an expert in anything to do with engineering or architecture is asked to write a brief for what they want. And invariably, they'll get it wrong. And when you come back and look at the questions of what do you really want behind that, yeah. then you then the client will say to you, well, what I really wanted was this. And now you're saying, but you've changed your mind. Said, well, I didn't really. No, it's just that you never asked the question the right way. Right. You know, so what we, have, uh, what we need to do uh, if we're finding out what the client really wants is to get behind that verbal overshadowing. And I think BIM and all these sorts of things will solve this problem. Yes. You know, if you bring people in and you say, okay, this is the type of room we're developing for you, and here you can visually see it in 3D, put a headset on you and see yeah. it. And they'll look and around and around. say, well, no, I, I, don't need, I, I don't need the teaching area there. I need it on the other wall. Or um, the rake of these seats is, yes. is, is wrong because I like to be able to walk up around it. I need to be able to get my students to do whatever. And within... 10, 15 minutes of this, you'll actually have a completely different space designed. And that's where its real value has come about now. Yeah. But to pull it back further than that, to find what does the client really want to start with, that's not fully developed yet, as it hasn't been developed yeah. uh, going in the other direction as to how will it be used for, for maintenance and operation. And even though everybody who talks about BIM will tell you that it's brilliant for the client to have this because they'll save a fortune in operation and maintenance, mm. and they probably will, Clients haven't bought that yet. Is that the big issue? Yeah, because they see it as something that you communicate the design between the designers and the contractors. And it's the contractors and the designers who are benefiting from this and they are paying for it. That's, That's where the mental block is. 
because I imagine, and again, I'm going to be oversimplistic on this, um, the client says, yeah, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I want to change to incorporate X, Y, and Z. The issue starts to become a, um, an issue of conflict if the client adds, but I don't want to pay any extra. Because I imagine if there is a change in uh, of design and the build process has to incorporate that and the client is happy to pay the extra it's not an issue is that too simplistic it's um, it is a bit simplistic yeah. but it's it there's a certain amount of reality in it as well yeah um, I'll give you an example if if I have a room that has a lot of technical stuff in the room and various different things terminate in that room and then the designer decides I'm going to terminate a box with all this stuff on the west wall. Yes. Whereas in actual fact you want it on the floor on the southeast corner. Right. Now, nobody ever asked me where I wanted it. So who's going to pay to get it from the west wall to the southeast corner? Yes. And why wasn't that question asked first? And this brings me back to the whole thing about function. That if you understand that what there's something that's going to happen in the southeast corner yes. of the room which couldn't happen in the, uh, near the west wall, then you'll understand, well, that's where it should have been in the first place. Yes. But finding that out when you already have the services in the wall yeah. is a problem. Is a problem. On the issue of um, the apprentice systems, do you... I remember you and I had a conversation. Actually, it wasn't more of a conversation. I was listening to you rant <laughs> um, about the apprentice system. And we tended, or we used to anyway, look like we would follow the boom-bust scenario but always a cycle out so yeah when we boomed the apprentice the people went in for higher levels of apprenticeship uh, entry and then we'd go on the bust and then they're all qualified and nothing to do and then etc etc has that changed is that not yet okay but in my view it does need to change uh, i'm not going to go on the same rant but it uh, i enjoy but your rants <laughs> they make a lot of sense no, in this particular case uh, what i was uh, or, or in that particular case what i was trying to to get across is that the apprenticeship systems are are worked around a seven stage training uh, idea that one three five and seven are yeah. out in industry and two four and six are in training or education yeah. and what tends to happen is that the training and education uh, provision gears itself up for delivery to whatever the, the uh, industry is doing at that particular time. And if the industry is increasing activity, mm. it's invariably behind. If the in industry is going down, it has an oversupply. And uh, phases two and four are provided in the technological universities or in the institutes of technology. And it takes a long time to actually get geared up to that level of activity because you have to hire people, you have to get facilities, you have to get, um, mm. you, you, you have to, in some places you actually have to get a space to do it. At the moment in, uh, in TU Dublin, um, what we're uh, trying to do is to build up our apprenticeship numbers. But most of the areas in which we used to do apprenticeships before have now been given over to other uh, types of education. And our people have been reskilled Right. to deliver those other types of education and we are getting people in because the industry is, is booming as well yes. but now the um, the apprenticeship system is, is coming back up and we have to deal with phase 4 and phase 6 and we have no lecturers and we have no space and we have no workshops to deal with specific areas right. now thankfully some other places do yeah. but it seems to be a shame that when we used to do so much that 
we can't respond the way we used to. Now we have a plan in place to do it, mm. but again, that depends on finance that's going to come from the government. And once we get approval from finance for a government, as you and I know well, to actually build something in the public sector takes about five years. Absolutely. So where will the cycle be in five years' time? Yeah. We have no idea. Because it's it just strikes that sometimes you look at those things, Louis, and you, you say, oh, I mean, the man on the street will look and think, the construction sector slows down, whole pile of uh, apprentices are released, if you like, into the system, and they become disillusioned and uh, you know they disappear and they go off abroad or whatever it is and then at what stage do you kind of look and someone says we need to have a complete review of this process and, and it has been reviewed on a number of occasions and they've come back to say that it's it's fine that, that it's okay but i would be inclined to think that if we have something which is done on a staged basis where we've yeah. you know stage one two and three or level one two and three then somebody can actually leave the country with a level one qualification yeah. or a level two qualification or whatever. At the moment, you can do three and a half years of, a, of an apprenticeship, but have no qualification. Do do you see much in terms of people wanting, the young people wanting to be apprentice? There is a demand for apprenticeship again. It's gone. It's going up again. Right. It's, it's, it is rapidly rising. Do you think the point system needs to be looked at at yeah, all? Definitely. Uh, the points. Yeah, the, the second level point system is not an education system. No. It's it's just an accumulation of points to get into university. But if, if you ask any second level student, what did they learn by the Leaving Cert? Yeah. They'll struggle to tell you. I know. I know. And uh, and, and that's a very poor reflection of, uh, of our education system, if that is the case. They will be numerate, and hopefully they will be literate, uh, mm. um, by the time they get to the end of it. But how many of them can actually speak French? Yeah. How many of them can actually understand scientific theories? How many of them can actually remember the stuff about history? Um, they they remember like me. You go in, you yeah. jam it in between two ears, and you hope it falls yeah. out on the page. And, um, and it's not that the te teachers aren't enthusiastic and the, the teachers aren't doing their best, but the teachers are also caught up in a system whereby you must get an A1 in this because you're not going to get an A1 in that, and you need to get so many A1s in order to, mm. to get science in wherever... It's a hard balance between because, yeah. like, for instance, if you take the construction sector and the, the, dis the disciplines in that sector, and for people wanting to get in there, um, the point system on those alone, there's some of them are through the roof as well. Are there any kind of low-hanging fruit issues that could be addressed there, without diluting the impact of the roles that people it, have and the responsibilities they'd have? Yeah, if you look at the... Um you look at TU Dublin, for example, and look at the um, uh, at, at the constituent parts of TU Dublin. We have different ways of getting to the same end yes. uh, in different programs. So in some cases, you can come in and do a certificate in something, yes. which then leads you on to uh, a, a, um, an ordinary degree, which in turn leads you on to an honours degree. Yes. You'll still get there in four years. Yes. But you can come in and you can, again, it's like what I talk, spoke about the apprenticeship system. You can actually go through the phases like this. To get into a certificate is much lower points yes. than it is to get into an honours degree. But the end result is the same. You know, so by looking at what's available, people can actually get to the same end. Yes. Starting from a different place. Which brings us to that point you said about 250 points, for instance, is not the end of the world. Not at all. No. Just get up and do something about it and find a way to and that's yeah. what you're saying in terms of yeah. if, if necessary for young people yeah. don't and be disillusioned Yeah, and, and the journey will take care of itself if you're doing everything that you possibly can do at any one particular point in time you will get to the place you're supposed to get to 
It might not be the place you expect to get to, but you'll certainly get there. Right, last question for you. Any hope for Mayo? <laughs> Hurling or football, even minors? Uh, well, um, well the, the only thing I'd say about hurling is that there's four different levels of All-Ireland in hurling. And we won one of them a few years ago. You know, so there's, there's always hope, you know. Um, Did you go to the match? Yes. Yeah. But the thing I'd say about Mayo, and this is a, it's a funny thing, most people say, oh, Mayo, oh, God help you that you, you know, you, you always lose and all this sort of thing. Mayo, oh. played, Mayo played 17 games this year between league and championship. Yeah. Now, one of them was in New York, so I didn't get to that one. Um, but I got to most of the other ones. And I had a great time. Yeah. Well, see, that's and, the thing. That's the point and, as well. And we, we lost we lost the semi-final. But I would reckon that uh, that Mayo people probably are more responsible for the carbon footprint uh, of, of, of <laughs> any sports people in this country than anybody else. Because we travel everywhere. Travel. I'd, reckon, I'd reckon I did at least 3,000 kilometres in this, this year alone just going to see Mayo games. Wow, wow. <laughs> but I enjoyed every one of them. I didn't particularly enjoy the result of the last one, but I enjoyed no. it. listen Louis thanks very much indeed you're welcome appreciate it thanks for listening please rate and review this episode and feel free to get in contact with us through our websites cmgtraining.com or cmgevents.ie and of course our usual social media platforms we love to hear your views on this or any episode until next time